Really good to see you. Glad we could be together. Welcome to those of you joining us online, wherever you are. So uh, have you ever, if you're like me, wondered, uh, God, what in the world are you up to? You ever, ever wonder that? It's okay to wonder that. We're in church and we can wonder that, okay? So God, why, don't, why, why didn't you, God, answer that prayer that I so sincerely prayed? Or uh, why, God, don't you step in uh, in times of adversity and evil uh, and, and reveal yourself and just act like it's pretty obvious that you need to step in, God? Or, or God, how come you don't, you don't let us know more about what you're doing? How come you don't reveal more of your secrets to us, at least more generously, might be some of our thoughts. So for the last couple of weeks, we've been in a series called Secrets of God. And uh, for me, this, this was kind of an exercise, something that was brewing in me for uh, many months. And uh, I thought, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrestle through this with you. So thank you for wrestling through this with me. Uh, I, I love the topic. And today, uh, I'm bringing the series to a conclusion. We're crossing the finish line with this uh, series. And I want to talk to you about God's secret for you. So uh, hopefully you brought a Bible with you today. We're going to spend some time looking uh, throughout the scriptures uh, and we're going to have a great time doing it. But before we attempt to solve any mysteries about God's secret secrets, we do we do good to remember that God's thoughts and his ways are higher than our thoughts and our ways, aren't they? They really are. And so when you and I are stumbling over trying to figure out what God is doing, what's, what he's up to, uh, we got to remember that there's a lot of distance between the way that we think and the way that God thinks and the way that we act and the way that God acts. And so God tells us that very plainly. It's a great starting point for a series on, <clears throat> on secrets, in fact. Uh, so therefore, we'll never fully comprehend God and his ways. You get that? We'll never fully comprehend God and his ways. And you should be relieved at hearing that sentence. Because if you and I could completely comprehend God in his ways, well, then we would be God. Because we can't comprehend God and his ways. And I believe this is true for all of eternity, too, by the way, that we'll continue to learn, we'll continue to grow, that even when we arrive in heaven and face to face with God, that we're, we're only getting just a glimpse of who he really is because he is infinite. And, and what a God we have in realizing that. So. But that doesn't mean that God is not willing to reveal some of his secrets to us. So here's the main point we wrestled to the ground last weekend, if you were with us. went something like this. Some of God's secrets are meant to be revealed, but only to his friends. Not just indiscriminately. Remember Jesus and his disciples, as Jesus was headed to the cross coming out of the upper room, they heard Jesus say these words, no longer, John 15 says, no longer, Jesus speaking to them, do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. In other words, Jesus is elevating them from beyond just being a servant, which is very important, and we don't cease to be servants, but a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. A servant's just hired to clean up or do whatever in the house. That's what a servant does. But Jesus is saying, no longer am I calling you servants. I'm elevating this. Instead, Jesus says, I have called you friends. For the things that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. Do you get that? The secrets that I had with the father and Jesus in this dependent relationship with his heavenly father was privy to the secrets of God. And God the Father revealed those secrets in this dependent relationship that Jesus had with the Father. And now Jesus is saying, 
I'm taking those secrets and I'm sharing them with you. You know why? Because you're my friends. And we discover that friendship is the secret to learning God's uh, secrets. So Jesus' relationship with his heavenly father was extraordinary. And now Jesus is sharing these secrets, not with everyone, but with his friends. So today, we'll spend most of our time in just one verse in the New Testament. And, and it's a verse that, that tells us that God has a special secret that he wants to reveal to you when you see him. A forever secret that no one will know except you and God. Now let, let the, the drama of that setup sink in for a minute, okay? That God has something to reveal to you, a secret to reveal to you that only you and He know. So we're going to explore what that is uh, all about. So the single verse that we're looking at today is found among the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And in chapters uh, 2 and 3 of Revelation, we find these letters to seven churches. Now, these are, these are seven real churches. They were real at the time of the writing. And so uh, they were seven churches in Asia Minor, which for us is modern-day Turkey. Real places, real churches, okay? And these letters are from Jesus, and they are recorded by his disciple, John. So a couple of chapters, two and three in Revelation, we find these letters to seven churches. Now, the verse that we're looking at today is in the letter to the church at Pergamum. So you can go ahead and make your way to uh, Revelation uh, chapter two. And I want to set us up by reading this single verse that we're going to spend some time in today. And it goes like this. Revelation two, verse 17. This is Jesus speaking. Here's what he says. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Wow, we're already set up pretty well, right? What an incredible verse. And in these letters to these seven churches, rather than calling unbelievers to salvation, Jesus instead is urging believers to wake up and stay focused on him. And he will say in each of these letters that it's worth it. So it's not evangelistic per se. These are letters to Christians, people who have already believed in Jesus. And Jesus is saying, listen, guys, you better wake up. You better pay attention here. This is worth it. And I'm going to tell you why it's worth it. So Jesus urges these believers to, do you see the word there, to overcome. And the results of their being an overcomer are quite spectacular indeed. And we'll unpack some of these things in this verse. So in his first epistle, John uses the concept of overcoming to show that a believer overcomes the world through belief. Here's what he says in uh, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 5. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, now John here in this verse is describing the incredible overcoming power of what happens when you and I understand who Jesus is. He's gone to the cross died for our sins, died in our place, now offers us a free gift. And in that moment of belief, he says, we have overcome what the world is trying to do to us by way of robbing us of eternal life. Okay, 
So that's incredible. He's using that idea of overcoming as being something that happens the moment you believe. However, what John talks about in his first epistle is very different from what he talks about in Revelation. I would suggest he is using the word overcomer in a different way than he does in his epistle. I would suggest that what John is describing as an overcomer could be defined like this. An overcomer is a believer who faithfully lives for Jesus, especially through difficult circumstances. Okay? So an overcomer in John's eyes, through these words that Jesus is speaking in these letters in Revelation 2 and 3, is a believer who faithfully lives for Jesus, especially through difficult circumstances. The Greek verb here is nikaio, which means to win or to be victorious or to be a victor, that word for uh, overcomer. Now, the idea of an overcomer is mentioned, in eight, uh, mentioned uh, in eight verses in Revelation. And none of these verses even mention faith or belief. Instead, you find them mentioning other things, that, that, not belief in salvation, but instead point to a reward for a Christian living faithfully for Jesus. For example, Revelation 2, verse 26. Listen to these words. You don't find faith and you don't find salvation. In fact, you find something very different. Here's what Jesus says. He who overcomes, there's a word, and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give the power over the nations. Not a description of getting the gift of eternal life. Or Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. Jesus says to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. You begin to see just in these few verses and others that what John is describing in Revelation is this whole idea of faithfully living for Jesus, especially through difficult uh, circumstances. Okay, so back to our verse. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. Overcomers are rewarded with hidden manna. So again, we've already established what an overcomer is. An overcomer is one who lives faithfully for Jesus, especially in difficult circumstances. And as a kind of privilege or reward, we might even say, that overcomer receives some hidden manna to eat. Now, what in the world is that all about? If you go back to the Old Testament, you discover when the Israelites wandered around, having been freed from Egypt, headed to the promised land on a detour, a major detour, right, of 40 years. Manna was that bread-like substance that God supernaturally provided for them. It would fall onto the ground and people would, would uh, eat it. it. It must have been incredible. But you got to realize this was for 40 years. Now, I don't know about you, there's certain things that I like. <clears throat> but I don't know if I want to eat them every day. So you can imagine there was quite a bit of grumbling related to this. In fact, God killed some people because they grumbled over this. Be careful, you know, about saying you don't like what's put before you. All right. OK. So you can imagine 40 years. OK. So surely during that time, there, uh, recipe books abounded. Right. So there was had to be baked manna, fried manna, manna kebabs. Right. Manna burgers, a manna charcuterie. Of course, 
Manicotti, all right, that was the, that's the easiest one. Some of you are wondering, that's where it came from. So in Exodus 16, we're told that a bowl of manna was hidden in the Ark of the Covenant. What was the Ark of the Covenant? Just a big box. And one of the things, the Ten Command, tablets of the Ten Commandments were in there. One of the things that went in there was a bowl of manna. Why? Well, the passage says next to 16, so that future generations could take a look at how God supernaturally provided for his people. Hey, guys, look at, look, look at that. Isn't that amazing? Now, the, there are all kinds of parallels here, not the least of which would be John chapter 6. This says, just as God fed the Israelites with manna, so too Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus himself is the life-sustaining manna, if you will, for those that believe in him. And if we eat that bread, unlike the Israelites who ate manna and died, if we eat the bread that is Jesus, the bread of life, we will live forever, John 6 tells us. So I like the way the Nelson Study Bible parses out this, this verse. It says, overcomers are promised supernatural sustenance in the resurrected state to enable them to function effectively as co-rulers in Christ's kingdom. Now, this is a fascinating study that we don't have time to really go into. But one of the things that we do know is that hidden manna is a kind of special privilege shared with those believers who overcome. And there's so many parallels to the sustenance and, you know, what, what's happening uh, even in heaven. And again, when you think of heaven or you think of eternity, you got to get the fuzzy floaty thing. We're all on clouds uh, out of your mind. You, you have to envision a reality that is more real and more tangible than this. Because we will inhabit a new earth and that will go on and on uh, forever with Jesus. So there's a popular view among well-meaning church people that says Christians will all be the same in heaven. You heard this? So there's this idea that because we've all been redeemed, which is an awesome thing, that somehow we'll all be the same in heaven. Now, I, to that statement, I want to say yes and no. We will all be the same in the sense that we have all been redeemed by Jesus. We will all be the same in that we will inhabit brand new bodies. We will be with him forever. He'll wipe away every tear. And the list goes on and on and on. But no in the sense that we will experience the same capacity or the same level of reward. Now, eternal life is not a reward. Going to heaven is not the reward when scriptures talk about reward. Jesus will bless us with extra things for our faithfulness. And this is just a fascinating study. And, and when I talk about this to people, I, I always hear this, you know, you know, kind of comparison or whatever like that. Or that person has more than I have or whatever. And here's the way that I like to describe it. And I think, while it's not found in the Bible, I think it's accurate. Every one of us in heaven will have a full cup. But the sizes of those cups will differ. So people that are rewarded as overcomers, and there are lots of different kinds of reward other than that, will have a greater capacity for all eternity, a greater capacity to enjoy certain things that God gives them. So it's a really powerful concept. So back to our verse for the final privilege mentioned for the overcomer. He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone. 
And on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Wow. So finally, Jesus mentions a special personalized secret for the overcomer. A white stone with a secret name on it. Now, I don't know about you, when I read something like that, I'm immediately, you know, thrown. This sounds like the Lord of the Rings or the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, doesn't it? I mean, that that sounds like Christian fantasy. That sounds like, wow, what what in the world are we talking about here? But I want to invite you to sit in this for a while because this is a powerful uh, concept. A white stone. And on it, like a new name. A secret name. God, in that white stone, gives you a secret name. So in antiquity, a white stone was given sometimes as a symbol of acquittal in a court case. But a white stone also symbolizes victory. One historian notes that winners at the Isthmian Games were awarded a small tablet of white stone with their name inscribed on it. In other words, this was given to the victor. This was given to those who sort of won their race. This was given as as a symbolic reminder that you did it, you achieved it, you overcame in in this race. Jesus tells us that an overcomer will receive a white stone with a secret name written on it. Now, here's where it gets really personal, okay? You're not standing there as a group. You're standing there by yourself. This is between you and God. So we each want to know, I think, that we are special and significant to God. Like some of my own personal struggles, like, like I feel like I can never do enough. That's just dysfunctional. And those personal struggles, I think you and I, at the core of our being, we just want to know that we're significant. We want to know that we're special to God. We, we want to know that we matter, don't we? And of course, every single person matters to God. Every single person is significant to God. But here we're describing something a little different. What would you most want to hear God say to you? You ever thought about this? Like, God, what? I would love it if I could hear this from you. What would that be? And, and if you could imagine, what secret name would, would be possible for you to hear from God? Now, and we don't know, and we won't know this side of it, but it's kind of fun to think about. Like, like I would want a name like, you know, Valiant Warrior, you know, or, uh, or Joe the Brave, or Joe Baby, which is what, yeah. That's yeah, an internal joke there. But, but I hope it's not, I hope it's not a name like, you know, Jesus nuzzling up to me and going, well, your name shall be called, well, he meant well. <clears throat> Or, or, you know, bless his heart. <laughs> That's his name. Your name shall be bless his heart, right? So if you overcome, you get a secret name. This is incredible. 
Could you imagine the intimacy related to that? Only you and God know for all eternity. I mean, and there won't be any of this, so, would you like to know my name? (laughs) No, it's an intimate, personal secret shared with you by God, right? So, let, let, let me take this a step further, because I believe a victorious overcomer is similar to a believer who is approved by God. And I've highlighted the two important words in this statement for you, okay? There are some striking similarities between an overcomer and one who is approved by God. God wants us to be approved by him. So let's unpack this a bit. Just like an overcomer, not every believer is approved by God. Let's let that settle in with you a little bit. I'm not talking about you're not loved or you're not special or any of that. Simply put, just like an overcomer, not every believer is approved by God. So let's look at the two Greek words. The word disapproved, the Greek is adokimos. And the word for approved is dokimos. So just like a negates, you know, atheist is a non-theist. You put the a in Greek in front of that and you get a non-approved, okay? So dokimos is approved. Adokimos is disapproved. Now listen to what Paul says to Timothy, who, by the way, is a pastor, And it's pretty safe to say was a Christian. Okay? He's Paul's son in the faith. That's what he talks to him. And so here's what Paul says to him under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Be diligent, Timothy, to present yourself, what's the word? Approved to God. A worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, if Paul here were talking about Timothy's salvation, he wouldn't use language like this. Because he already stands clean before Jesus. He's already been forgiven. He already has eternal life and all that. He's talking about something else. And so he says to Timothy, hey, be diligent. Don't miss that word. To present yourself approved to God. Now, why would Paul say that? Because Timothy might be disapproved. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, a believer who doesn't diligently live for God will stand disapproved before him. I'm not talking about won't be in heaven. I'm not talking about not loved by God. Because any parent understands how it's possible to love a child completely and not approve of certain actions or behavior. Any parent knows this. Any parent knows how you can separate the love of a child from disapproval. Trish and I were thinking about a story that happened years and years ago. Our oldest son, Ben, was probably six at the time we were painting this room. And Ben, because he wanted to help, he goes and he grabs this unopened paint can. How hard could that be? Grabs it by the handle and comes like this into our living room. And it slips out of his hand. It's not even opened yet, yet. <laughs> the corner of that paint, paint bucket hits the carpet and it's like a cannon goes off. It's like, bleh. And we're looking at all this. Now, I have to say, we didn't stop loving our son, but whoa, we did not approve of that. <laughs> we didn't. So it's easy to separate that. Why would we think God would be any different? God can look at us and love us as his sons and daughters. He can guarantee us eternal life forever and all that kind of stuff. But we can still find ourselves disapproved by God. Have you ever done anything that met with God's disapproval? Yeah, there's a lot of amens there. 
Of course, and so have I. Does God still love you in that? Absolutely, he does. That's how he is. So when I, when I speak on this topic, I, I sometimes watch a cloud of discouragement roll over people. Because all of us are suspicious that we're not measuring up, aren't we? So let's just level the playing field. Yeah, okay, it's tough. And do we want God to approve of us? Yes, we do. And I want to encourage you and motivate you. And my feeling is it, it's better to face this issue now than face it face to face with Jesus. Because we can begin to wrestle this thing uh, to the ground. So Paul's priority of faithfulness is seen when he says, I run to win. That's what he's saying. And that, that uh, metaphor is running the, the race of his life. So he's become a Christian, incredible conversion experience. If you don't know Paul's story, you should go back and read it in, in uh, the book of Acts. And now he's running his race. He calls it a race. I'm running to win. He even uses the word win. And to win would be to be approved by God. To win would be to be faithful as he lives his life for God. And so I run to win. I don't run with uncertainty. Here's what he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. But instead, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Now, what in the world is going on there? Some, some people look at this verse and they conclude that Paul was afraid of losing his salvation. That could not be further from the truth. Paul wasn't afraid of losing his salvation. He had it. He knew that by faith alone, this is a guy that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit wrote books like Romans and Galatians. There's no better place to go to discover the free offer of uh, eternal life. So the word disqualified at the very end there, would it surprise you? Is adokimos? Disapproved. You could translate this verse, you know, that I myself should become disapproved. Was Paul afraid of losing his salvation? Absolutely not. Did he realize there was a chance he could stand disapproved before God? Absolutely. That's what he's saying. Even the apostle Paul realized that by the way that he lived for Jesus, he may appear before him approved or disapproved. So what did he do about it? He said, I discipline my body. I'm cooperating with God as he works in my life. So without prioritizing attention to God, it's likely that we'll stand before him ashamed instead of confident. 1 John 2.28 says this, Let us abide in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and not ashamed at his coming. Now, that's not a shame forever kind of thing. I believe that's a momentary encounter. After all, he says, I'll wipe away every tear from your eyes, so there are going to be tears there. If, in fact... We don't overcome if, in fact, we don't live diligently for him. Now, Paul never doubted that he was saved and headed for heaven, but he did acknowledge that he might not win. He could be disapproved or he could forfeit receiving reward if he didn't diligently live for God. Now, for the believer in Jesus, your eternal destination is not determined by the way you live. I feel like we need to tell every person that we know about that truth. That's grace. Your eternal destination is not determined by the way that you live. The believer has received an instantaneous, unconditional promise from God 
a promise received the moment you believe in Jesus, right standing justified before him, eternal life. Jesus said, he who believes in me has, right now, has everlasting life. Okay? However, it is possible to change the quality of our eternity by the way that we live now. And I'm talking to believers. By becoming an overcomer. So the, the movie Gladiator is a classic. Uh, well, I was just listening to that theme song not too long ago. Wow, super, super powerful. And in the movie, Maximus makes this comment. What we do in life echoes in eternity. Now, the phrase is borrowed in part from Marcus Aurelius, who was a Roman emperor and a philosopher. But I would suggest that these words are thoroughly biblical. That even for the believer, how we live affects the quality of our eternity. I'm not talking about whether or not you go to heaven or are separated from God. I'm talking about the quality of that experience. Listen to Jesus' words. They reveal this to us in Matthew chapter 6. He says, Jesus says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys or where thieves can't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart would be also. Why would Jesus tell us to lay up treasure in heaven if in an instant we are justified and clean before him and headed to heaven? Because he's talking about something else. He's talking about something very similar to what we're discussing here. When Stephen Covey released his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, lots of years ago now, it quickly climbed to the bestseller list. And habit number two of those seven habits goes like this. Begin with the end in mind. Begin with the end in mind. This is great advice for the Christ follower. We know how it ends. We can anticipate standing before Jesus. So let me offer another suggestion. Anticipating eternity helps us please God in the present and prepares us to enjoy special privileges with him forever. You see how the present and the eternal are combining. So God has revealed just enough of one secret to cause us to long for another secret. He told us there's a secret coming. He didn't tell us what that secret is. He didn't tell you what your secret name is. It's a white stone and on the stone a new name written which no one knows except the one who receives it. So does God keep secrets? Yeah, he does. We'll, we'll never fully comprehend God's great secrets. But sometimes God likes to reveal secrets. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean you'll always live like one. But if, with God's help, you overcome difficulties and live faithfully for Jesus, you will be an overcomer. And God has a secret to share with you. It's personal. No one else will ever know. You'll know for all of eternity what God thinks of you. Your new name that defines who you really are. It's incredible to think about, isn't it? Yes, it is. And my greatest hope is that this would motivate all of us to say, God, it matters how I live. You know, he has resourced us through his Holy Spirit, those of us who have believed in him. 
And with that presence of the Holy Spirit, God says, I can empower you to live life. If you rely on me, if you trust in me, you will be an overcomer. Let's pray together. Wow, God, we thank you for your plan, your plan for people like us, frail, sinful human beings. We thank you that, first of all, you've made a way for us to be forgiven. You've made a way for us to enter into life with you, to experience new birth. And our prayer, not unlike the Apostle Paul, would, would be that we would run our race in a way that honors you, that brings you glory, that pleases you. Thank you for your resources that help us do that, your indwelling Holy Spirit, your word that's so clear, truth to live by. And our prayer, God, is that we live out our days, no matter the obstacles, no matter the challenges, that we will overcome. And we know if that's the case, what awaits us is something extraordinary. Thank you for your plan for us, your love for us. We pray this in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen.